0: Hello listeners of This Is Our Design. Uh, Just before we begin, I wanted to let you know how this podcast is going to work. We have what is essentially an episode in two parts. The first of which is uh, a combination analysis and interview with director Vincenzo Natale. And immediately following that, Kate and I talk a little bit more about this most recent episode of Hannibal. We had tons of fun with this one because Vincenzo was kind enough to take the time to do this. This podcast runs about an hour and 25 minutes in total which is almost double our normal amount, so there's plenty of Hannibal discussion here. Uh, the, the Vincenzo Natale segment concludes at about the 50-minute mark, immediately after which Kate and I keep going. So kick back and enjoy. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On sites Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound On Sight, and I am joined, as always, by Kate Kolzak, TV editor at Sound On Sight. Kate, I'm full of myself. How are you?
1: <laughs> I don't know how to follow that up. I don't think that there's a good way for me That's to follow fair. that up. <laughs> That's fair
0: enough. This week we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 12, Tomei Wan, written by uh, Chris Brancato, Brian Fuller, and Scott Nemerfro, directed by Michael Reimer. And joining us is a very special guest. He is the director of Cube, Splice, among other films. Uh, of course, more importantly for this podcast, he is the director of Hannibal Season 2, Episodes 8 and 10, Sue Zakana, and Nakachoko. Uh, we are very happy to welcome Mr. Vincenzo Natale. Vincenzo, thank you for coming on to talk with us.
2: Oh, this is fun. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Kate.
0: All right, so we'll go ahead and get started because we're uh, a little bit limited on time. I wanted to begin by asking you, Vincenzo, about uh, loneliness, which I think is, for me, a really interesting concept in and of itself, but especially how it applies to Hannibal. And this has come up a couple times recently, and specifically in this episode in two different lines of dialogue, one in which uh, Bedelia says to Jack, nothing makes us more vulnerable than loneliness. And then before that, when Will tells Hannibal, You are as alone as I am, and we're both alone without each other. And I wanted to know if you agreed with Will that both he and Hannibal are lonely characters.
2: Yes, I think that, certainly for Will, that's, as far as I could discern, that came from the heart. And, uh, you know, Will, at this moment in the series, is a somewhat ambiguous character, and his loneliness is obviously one of the factors that is uh, bringing him and Hannibal together, ironically. Uh, so I think that's a very, uh, insightful and, and truthful observation, Sean.
0: I think with Hannibal, that's one of the ways, one of the easiest ways I should say that is for me to try to understand him. Not that I think that we can justify any of the things that he does through a specific lens, but considering that he's a character who seems not to have many peers, either intellectual or physically. Um, and I would assume that, he would feel that way uh loneliness I think plays a big part in in what determines what he does but is this something that that you also agree with Kate and do you think that um something like this makes these characters vulnerable specifically given that we hear Bedelia say that uh whimsy seems to be what makes Hannibal vulnerable in this instance
1: well can we just take a moment for just how amazing it was to have uh Dr. DeMaurier back and specifically Gillian Anderson I I must have just not been paying attention to the credits because I didn't see her name come up. And when the camera pulled around to to show her, I may have made a very loud noise at home. I was very excited (laughs) to see her back. And I I love that line about whimsy. Uh, And the little, almost, just the barest hint of a smile that kind of went with it. It was such a a lovely moment from Gillian Anderson. As for loneliness, yeah, this is something we've been seeing with Hannibal since the first season. This is what DeMaurier warned him about when he was trying to attach more to Will and she was saying that the, that the the police are going to start noticing your your patterns or your habits because he does keep seem to keep seeking out people to mentor or in Will's case a friend oh uh it's so such a weird concept but um as, as for Will I do think he is less lonely than he would have Hannibal believe of course he's much closer to to Jack and now to theoretically to Alana than than Hannibal hopefully knows. But yeah, these are two characters who are very much uh, isolated either through their own choice, as we've talked about recently with Will, or just because there is no one else like Hannibal. And uh, that does very much seem to drive them, and it does make both of them, I think, very vulnerable, as is discussed in this episode.
0: What you mentioned about the, the credits, that was something that definitely stuck out. Uh, I think this is the first time we got the special guest appearance to come at the end of the episode, and I really appreciated that as a viewer of television, because that sometimes uh, takes away from some of the, the surprise, in addition to a lot of those you know, previously on segments that we sometimes get in TV series. Uh, so that was great. There's plenty of t- to talk about in this episode. I feel like we should probably address the, the bigger things... Um, in the second half of it, probably as soon as possible. So since, uh, since Vincenzo, you directed the episodes that introduced us to the Verger siblings, um, have you enjoyed seeing Fuller's adaptations of these characters and what do you think of the conclusion to their season arc in this episode?
2: (laughs) I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's interesting because I had a little bit of an inside view as to how the stories were evolving. And I actually thought that it was going to end differently. I think there's been a lot of, I think the way Brian works is quite um intuitive and malleable and and I I believe that there was another fate awaiting Mason originally as conceived and then it he sort of left his fate somewhat ambiguous although we know it's not going to be very pleasant um but I think you know they're fascinating characters and if anything if I have any sort of regret uh about their appearance on the show it's just that they they didn't get a lot of time I wish there was they're so Twisted and complex, and there's such an amazing family history. I wish, I wish that there was more of an opportunity to be with them. Although I'd be the least bit surprised if they show up in the next season. But, uh, but yeah, it was really fun from my perspective having the honor and the <laughs> opportunity to introduce them. Because even when I was shooting the first scene with them, I didn't know who Mason was going to be cast as. If you saw my first episode which was number eight um we actually only see Margot clearly and mason remains this sort of enigmatic form in the background and and at that point we didn't know who it was going to be <laughs> We didn't know we didn't know what actor was going to play the role so it's it's been a really fun discovery process for me to see how that character took form um and uh you know i think michael pitt did an amazing job he's a lot of fun he's obviously having a lot of fun playing the part as well. So yeah, no, it's I think I think they're I think their their conception is somewhat different than the Thomas Harris books, from what I know. I actually have to confess I've never read the books. I've only gotten that information secondhand. But I it sounds like Brian departed, certainly with Margot, um, but in a, a very interesting way that segues nicely with the A story between Will and Hannibal.
0: Oh it absolutely does. Kate Kate, I hope that you hadn't spoiled yourself on what exactly Hannibal does to to Mason or persuades him to do um and i'd be interested if you hadn't spoiled yourself what was your what was just going through your head during that scene where Will walks back up to his house and sees Mason feeding himself to his dogs
1: Well, i knew i liked winston that's what i uh, was going through my head a little bit uh the only dog to not be ready for a little dinner <laughs> um but uh yeah i did I didn't remember that. I, I like like Vincenzo, I have not read the books and so I'm only passingly familiar with these characters through Silence of the Lambs and then of course the series. Uh so so I didn't know what was coming but then once I saw it something triggered in my memory so I think I must have listened to a podcast at some point when they were talking about these characters and and had the horrific end of uh, uh or the fate I guess of of Mason spoiled for me. So I did actually know about that once it was reminded, once I was reminded by the episode. But it was still horrific to see. And I mean, I think a lot of that also comes down to performance. The handling of that scene was was very, you know, careful and uh, very deliberate. I'm sure that I, I I seem to recall on the AV Club walkthrough uh, with Brian Fuller and, of course, Todd Vanderworf, they were talking about the approach to that scene and how that like started as a standards and practices conversation and what they eventually came away with i'm just i'm glad that this is a show that it's on NBC where they couldn't just show everything i think that restriction Uh, to have to show you know show less and leave more to your imagination actually might make the scene more effective and and or maybe i just am afraid as a non-horror person as a non-gore person maybe just grateful for standards and practices for once but um but no i thought it was very effective very creepy the sound design of like the slight change in uh the the performance from Pitt, you know in his his vocal performance because he doesn't have cheeks uh was was nice and um Just, it's a memorable and horrific scene. One of the most challenging to watch, I would say, of the series so far. Sean, you knew what was coming, I'm guessing?
0: Yeah, I knew that it's not done chronologically in real time in the novel Hannibal, but we we get the references in the flashback to uh, figuring out that Hannibal was the one who forced Mason to, to cut his face, yeah. So
1: how did it work for you, knowing what was coming? Or having an idea of what might be coming?
0: You know, I... Fuller has done a really interesting job of working around the, the novels and, and making just the slightest of departures here and there, so I honestly didn't know if this was going to take place in this episode or even this season. You know, uh, and considering that in theory there's one more season before we reach the events of Red Dragon, um, there's still plenty of opportunity to use those characters, but to see it here was just fantastic, I thought, and, and probably the most appropriate place uh, in the season given that kind of just cuts off that part of the story so we can really dig our teeth into the Will, uh, Alana, Hannibal Jack stuff in the next episode, presumably. Um, But, like you said, the fact that it's on NBC, it allows it to kind of benefit from those restrictions. And so in the same way that we saw only parts of the Randall man-bear suits, and that was what made it really effective, uh, having a lot of this shot in the dark made this sequence really effective for me. And it was still very gruesome and and absolutely one of the most memorable things from the season or the series to date. Um, speaking of just kind of cinematography and going into the more technical stuff, since we have Vincenzo here, I wanted to ask about a couple of sequences, one of them related to to Mason and that's the, the drug-induced state that Hannibal puts him under and kind of how that shot, how a director goes about doing that. And also um, there's a scene earlier in the episode in which Hannibal and Will are talking and it's shot in a way, and this is when Will's talking about how um, Hannibal only wants Hannibal in Will's life, basically. He's removed everything else. And it, the camera kind of goes behind each of the characters so that we see the back of their heads kind of obscure the one that the camera's looking mm-hmm. at. Right. Um, and, and we've seen, obviously, some images in which these two characters are meant to overlap visually. But um, just, just kind of talking about those two scenes, what else was going on there from the, the perspective of the director?
2: Uh well you know that episode was directed by Michael Reimer, who's one of the mainstays on the show and who's really amazing I was I've always been impressed by his episodes in particular and they're done with a very artful eye and he's particularly adept I think at blocking actors and blocking the camera to actors and I I really uh, I recall that scene with I, I I have to say I saw this episode probably about a month ago so it's not fresh fresh in my mind um in a in it's not its final cut form but i remember that scene uh, with will and hannibal and the way their faces um eclipsed each other which i just thought was so beautiful and and interesting and very telling of wh- the way the show is made i was you know i i don't come from a tv background in fact um until hannibal i hadn't really done much i certainly hadn't done any tv in quite some time and to me going into stepping into the hannibal set it was like making a movie it was Never, in fact, Brian Fuller made it very, very clear that he did not want his shows to be shot like TV or what we're used to describing as television. He really wants something that's artful and cinematic and kind of experimental. So, you know, I just enjoy watching the show because, uh, for one, one of the things I enjoy watching about the show is just simply to see what the directors do because they're always playing with the medium and um, doing very unconventional things. It's, it's actually shocking to me that it's a network show. It just seems so antithetical to what I, certainly what I grew up knowing as network TV. It's, it's a little bit closer to European art house cinema. So, um, which is amazing. And so both of those sequences that you're talking about, I think, owe a debt to, you know, people like Ingmar Bergman and, Maybe in the case of the hallucination scene, Stan Brackage. Uh, I don't know if those are Michael's real references, but that's that's what they rem- remind me of. And it's great to see a show that clearly has the authorship of Brian Fuller, but also has, um, with each director in each episode, a very distinct visual style that I think is specific to that particular director. I actually thought the opening scene with Will's... Um, sort of uh, fantasy dream of Hannibal being um, hoisted over the pig maze <laughs> to be exceptionally beautiful. I just thought it was so gorgeous. And uh, and that's all Michael. He's a very, very gifted filmmaker.
0: Was I the only one who thought that that sounded a lot like the the velociraptor cage from Jurassic Park?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it's appropriately gruesome. It should be and it, and it is. And there's a lot there in the scoring that kind of fits with that as well, but we'll we'll get there.
0: (laughs) Uh, We talked a little bit about dreams, which you just mentioned that, and there's a conversation uh, about dreams in this, which is not something unfamiliar to Hannibal, Uh, but Will says so much about this feels like a dream. Hannibal says dreams prepare us for waking life, to which Will responds, it's one thing to dream, it's another to understand the nature of a dream. Uh, And Kato is wondering, do you think that the effects dreams and the unconscious have on a person can be as powerful as someone actively persuading someone else. Um, Have Will's dreams helped him thus far?
1: That's another one of those frustratingly good questions, Sean. Um,
2: (laughs) Feel
0: free to jump in, Vincenzo, and help
1: out. (laughs) He does this to me every week. Um,
2: You're you're asking some fairly heavy stuff.
1: Well, I I I, think this particular dream that I keep coming back to all season because we weren't sure what to think of it when it happened is that that dream of wills when he's in in the the institution and he doesn't see the wendigo he sees hannibal beckoning him back into his cell because i still don't know that i have a handle on precisely what that meant um so when i'm thinking about wills dreams recently i guess of course the most recent dream we saw was was with freddie um his you know nightmare about that and because i i think a fantasy is different than a dream because you have some control over if you're imagining something if you're actively imagining something you're engaging a different part of your brain than if you're allowing your subconscious or or if your subconscious is sort of playing as it does when you're in a dream state and so i you know there's there's a different element there but uh certainly if you remember your dreams i never remember my dreams but if you do remember your dreams they can be significant they can give you a, a window into what you're thinking about and what's going on in your life. If you want to you know, examine them or sometimes a banana is a banana. Um, but uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put anything in Will's dreams on the same tier of significance to, to his actions as any of the stuff that uh, Hannibal's been whispering to him through the chrysalis.
0: I think that's fair. But I also think that were it not for some of these dreams, and, and Will seems to have them with frequency. I'd be worried, because we've talked about how, how Fuller has set up this kind of narrative, sleight of hand, that some viewers really aren't sure to what degree Will is succumbing to what he's pretending to be. And, and I wonder if without those dreams and those nightmares kind of pointing out just the, the kind of natural evil that is Hannibal Lecter, if he would be even just slightly more tempted to to go to that side or that version of himself that, that Hannibal's trying to craft. Um again it's something that's been brought up before but it's it's a rather interesting subject and um I think that they expanded on it a bit in this episode.
1: I have a question for Vincenzo quickly. What do you think about about these different types of dreaming or or fantasies that we see from Will because of course I'm thinking in in the the Will's design that the episode that which is of course the second episode you directed of the show this year, we get his projection where he's sort of talking to Randall or to half saber tooth tiger, creepy, whatever, <laughs> Randall, how how would you relate his projections or conversations that he has with himself when he's visualizing to a dream to, as compared to something like the fantasy sequence we get from him this week?
2: Well, uh, you know, I think it's, there are different um, shades of gray <laughs> when it mm-hmm. comes to the dream sequences in the show. And I actually think, For me, the whole show is a dream. It's just, you know, it's definitely outside the bounds of what we would consider normal reality, and which I think is necessary in order to accept some of the things that go on in the show. So, uh, you know, in the larger sense, I would say that it's what Will is experiencing is kind of a dream within a dream, if we we sort of take the point of view that the whole show is somewhat dreamlike. Um, But in terms of it... The fantasies or dreams and their significance to Will as a character, um, I think that the decrims are obviously very much within Will's control and very much projections that he has on a real situation. Even in the one that was in my episode where it kind of stepped outside the boundaries of the normal decrim paradigm where in in this case he was actually having a a conversation with a, a ghost Um, albeit a ghost he was conjuring in his own mind. Um, But that, I felt, was very much Will consciously projecting something onto a real situation, whereas when Will encounters the Wendigo, I feel like that is more of, not even a fantasy, but more of a symbolic representation of what is going on for the viewer, and less something that Will is seeing literally. It's more of a, that's how I take it anyway, I don't know if this is the intention the way Brian writes it, but I take it to be something that helps the viewer get inside um, Will's head and makes those scenes entirely subjective. But I don't take them... I don't know that Will even sees things that we see. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Like, for instance, in 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 that in second episode I did, Will fights Randall Tear, but when he's fighting Randall, Randall appears first as the stag the Wendigo and then and then Randall appears as the stag man and then briefly as Hannibal and then finally is revealed as you know the empirical reality which is that uh, it's Randall will is seeing all of those things i think i don't know that he sees the stag man in the literal sense i feel like that's just how he is dealing with the moment i think that's that's what's going on inside his, his mind, but I don't think that it's it's a fantasy. I think it's more of a filmmaker's device. I th- I think in some of those scenes, the, the, the Wendigo is a metaphorical image that's being used by the filmmaker to represent something rather than something that even the character is literally seeing. That's how I took it.
0: Some of these dream sequences or these dreamlike sequences, I think really stand out in our memory as... Viewers of this show across several weeks. And um, th- there's a conversation between Jack and Hannibal in this episode that I think works rather, rather well on the meta level uh, when Hannibal's serving that, that really elaborate Ukrainian meal to him. Uh, they talk about life in terms of being uh, a series of moments that can be taken out of context. Uh, we know design is a big thing in this series. Uh, but, Kate, do you think that this story, this overall Hannibal story, uh, works perhaps even better as a series of moments rather than as a larger unit.
1: Well, for me, um, well, for some people, I'm sure that is absolutely the case. For me, uh, not no, because I love all of these long, long form storytelling uh, elements to the show. So, I while I haven't been actively thinking of that fight scene that op- opened the se- season, each episode, I no n- just knowing that it's going to end up there has. Impacted the way that I, I view the, the the overall progression of of Jack and of of Hannibal, and so I, you know I, I like looking at the larger picture as well as just the individual moments. So while while you know doing a weekly podcast about a show or writing a review about a show, it's very easy to get focused on the the micro, I also very much appreciate the macro, and so going back and watching some season one Hannibal, like it sounds like we might be doing later this summer, uh, I'm really going to be looking forward to how the characters have progressed since the pilot, since the, the end of season one, since the beginning of season two. And so, yes, I'm sure for some, definitely there are moments that are that are far more uh, significant to them than maybe the overall progression, but just from the way that I prefer to view television. Uh, it, it that is not you know where I wind up finding the greatest pleasure.
0: I think I might be one of those people as far as Hannibal goes, but it's strange because one of the the moments that I would point to is obviously the season one finale and specifically that last scene, and a lot of that impact comes from that season's worth of build up. Uh, but then I look at something like the the teacup shattering and then coming back together, and that was easily one of the most memorable uh, moments for me, and that works entirely. Uh, out of context, all you need is basically that comment that Hannibal gives about that meaning, but there's not necessarily like story that needs to be surrounding that uh, Vincenzo. do you think of the hannibal uh episodes that you've seen as pieces of a much bigger story, or do you kind of more remember and focus on the the smaller moments
2: uh well, I think it's you know it's both, and that's what's so magnificent about the canvas of a tv series where it's just it's so novelistic uh, as compared with a movie which you know a maximum of two and a half hours <clears throat> seems quite limited in the range of storytelling that you can have but um but like a great novel i think a great tv series um encompasses both of those things something that's grand and that carries characters through these you know complex narratives and then at the same time is full of great metaphors and singular images that sort of linger with you. I mean, I guess it depends on what kind of person you are. I I actually probably am the kind of person who remembers the image rather than the, the overall story.
0: So speaking, uh, coming off of that, speaking about images and moments, I also wanted to look at kind of just the, the general structure of this episode, because for me, I think it was the first thing that stood out. Uh, so we get the first half of this episode and it's a very kind of quiet, deliberate version of Hannibal that mostly consists of conversations between two people, you know, whether that's Will and Hannibal, Will and uh, Bedelia, Jack and Bedelia, Hannibal and Mason, um, a lot of those kinds of scenes. And then the second half, obviously, is anything but quiet. Kate, did this contrast in pace and tone work for you? And do you think that the Hannibal does one of these better, or is this another case of it, it does both things very well?
1: Well, I do think it does both pretty well. And the this is a show, that is very good at action when it decides to do it. It doesn't always go there, but, you know, watching that very brief, uh, un- unfortunately, really disappointingly brief fight scene um, in Hannibal's office just because Mass Mickelson is so good at action. Uh, so watching him just do a little bit of stunt work there, uh, as well as I'm sure the stunt choreographer and all of that was really exciting and fun. Um, it, I think it's very good at that, but this is a show that for me does come down to those conversations. And I was struck by the the directorial choice to have so many of those conversations in just close-ups on on profiles cutting back and forth. Uh, we see that with Bedelia. We see that when she's talking to Will and when she's specifically later when she's talking to Jack. But we also see that regularly in, in Hannibal's office. And actually, the fact that they don't do that immediately with Mason's uh, first scene really contrasts the relationship Mason has with Hannibal with what he has with will because mason is goading hannibal and just being such a dick uh throughout that that first scene you know the those those contrasts that i was seeing were actually between the various conversation scenes rather than between the the action sequence or the suspense sequences later in the episode
0: i had one more question before we kind of talk a little bit more generally about the show and and directing because we have vincenzo here um there's a exchange of dialogue. Between Hannibal and Mason in that scene that you've just mentioned, Kate, and uh, Hannibal says Marco's happiness is more important than her suffering, and and Mason's response is, "You say that as though the two are mutually excu- exclusive," and, and Hannibal believes that they are. We've talked a little bit before on this podcast about how Hannibal sees the beauty in most things, including death. So I was, I guess, I was just a bit surprised to hear that he believes that they're can be no happiness and suffering because that seems to me like a very Hannibal thing to believe. And I was wondering, Vincenzo, if this rang true for you for that character and, and what you thought of these two things kind of being incompatible as concepts.
2: Well, you know, I probably should have watched this episode, um, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have it so freshly in my mind, but it's, so it's, I'm taking this a little bit, um, uh, out of context, but I I suspect that Hannibal said that because he has great sympathy and affection for Margot, and he really hates Mason. So I, I don't, again, I, I'd love to see the scene to make sure I'm understanding it in context, but I, I suspect, I think your observation is is absolutely true and is one of the reasons why Hannibal is such a magnificent character and Mads is such a magnificent actor for that character because he's so ambiguous and you know he really he walks the line between just absolutely pure evil and then kind of a godliness that is and a sophistication and a um, sense and and a, 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 actually has a sensitivity that is very admirable and attractive. So you know to to the point I think what's so great about the character is that he's such he's such a seductive, interesting, erudite, amazing, cool guy <laughs> that. Uh, he really begins to make you question your own sense of moral values. Uh, So uh, in in relation, so I I think your observation is really great because it's true. Hannibal might be the kind of person who would say, you know, suffering and beauty go hand in hand and you can't have one without the other. And they're all entwined and they're beautiful and wonderful. I, I suspect in this particular case, and he might say that in another context, I guess is what I'm getting at in this particular case. I, I imagine it's because of his feelings for Margot and his absolute hatred for Mason that he's he's taking a, what we might consider a more conventional view of things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's interesting because that was exactly what I was thinking about as I watched that scene. That line of dialogue is one of the main ones I keyed into Sean for the for this episode. And what I was thinking about as I was watching it is I actually had the exact same. Uh, interpretation of Vincenzo where it's he's very colored by his <laughs> hatred of Mason and his affection for Margot. What I was trying to decide though and I I'm not sure where I've fallen it and Sean I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Does Hannibal realize he's being a hypocrite with that statement or not? Because he's caused so much suffering to uh to Will and to so many people. He has to have seen the suffering he caused Will. I mean, he 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 interviewed him in the insane asylum. He saw that, you know he's he has to realize that he's caused suffering to people that he supposedly cares about, um, while he while he thinks he's doing making choices that will make them happy or prompting them along a path that will lead to them becoming, in the Thomas Harris sense, uh, their ultimate ideal or his idea of what their ideal is. And so I, I couldn't decide in, on if Hannibal knew he was being hypocritical or not with that statement. And uh, Sean, what do you think?
0: The more that I've watched Hannibal, the more I've come to believe that he, the character, is very aware of his hypocrisy. And that's just because we've seen so many different faces for him. And we've seen him kind of interchange those very frequently that I, I don't really have a sense of what goes on in his consciousness i think it might just be a blank and he will just reach for something the nearest thing basically and if that's something that kind of um disagrees philosophically with another version of himself then that's fine that that he doesn't really care about that too much um so i guess that would be my response
1: interesting he also may just have A way of telling himself that for Margot that is true, but for these other people, for Will, Will is a different person. So Will can suffer and reach happiness through suffering. You know, who knows? Uh, And I do. I don't exactly remember the specific dialogue with that. I I feel like he might say something about for Margot that's not true, but um, it it certainly is an interesting develop or interesting uh, statement from him, and one that I look forward to unpacking over the next uh, week or so until the finale.
0: Absolutely. Um, so while we still have a here, I think uh, if we have enough time, we'll just ask some more general questions, I guess, about directing and kind of your involvement with Hannibal and, and feel free to to cut us off whenever you need to go. Oh, um, thank you. So the first one, I guess, just generally, what is it about this series that attracts you as a director or provides you maybe with a fun challenge?
2: Uh, well, you know, <laughs> it's very hard to say why we like things. Um, but I just re- I really loved Hannibal the show, the first season. I thought it was so twisted and beautiful, and I, I, there was something particularly attractive to me about the way it would marry something that is utterly repulsive and grotesque with something that's so beautiful. And um, and it's it's that combination that really makes it work. And I, you know, I have to say, when I saw the show, I thought I'm I'm the right guy for this. <laughs> I really it's very close to my own aesthetic so I felt unbelievably fortunate to be asked to do a couple episodes and uh I was terrified too when I stepped into that because I thought the bar had been set so high in terms of the quality of the filmmaking um especially on a television schedule I don't even after having done two episodes I'm still not quite sure (laughs) (laughs) how it how it gets done it's really amazing it's really quite amazing you know when you shoot an episode in eight days to to give you some context you know uh a film uh, my first movie for instance which is an unbelievably low budget film that was made for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. i had 20 days to shoot it an hour and a half so an episode of hannibal which is you know pretty complex thing there's a lot going on and you know a lot in terms of performance and so on and this very um, sophisticated look being done in eight days is really quite a feat. And it's, it's a testament to the other directors. It's also a testament to the crew and James Hawkinson, who's the DP is really exceptional. So um, anyway, all this is to say, I thought as excited as I was to do it, I was also somewhat intimidated. Um, I was drawn to it both because I, I love what Brian did with Hannibal and also because of the challenge of it. I have to say when I first heard of the idea of a Hannibal TV show, I thought it just sounds terrible. (laughs) Like what, what are you going to do? All I could, I just couldn't imagine what that could be without it being absolutely corny. And, you know, how could you, who would you get to play that role because it's, you know, Anthony Hopkins absolutely owns it and it could only be a disappointment. I think it's also a testament to Brian Fuller that he took what, I think could have been a disastrous concept and made it into something that, in many respects, eclipses those movies. Even Silence of the Lambs. I mean, I think Mads is the definitive Hannibal for me, anyway. You know, it's as brilliant as Anthony Hopkins. Sir Anthony Hopkins is. I think Mads really takes it somewhere um, that is even more sophisticated and complex. And um, and again, I think it's a Hannibal is a perfect case study in terms of how something that you could only imagine as being a movie could be transformed into a TV series and be possibly more effective in that format. Um, I really love, I mean, I, I, sorry, I'm probably giving you a much longer answer than you want. But I, when I was a kid, I watched a lot of TV. I watched too much. (laughs) I watched so much TV that by the time I was 16 or 17, I, I couldn't watch it anymore. I was, it was like, it made me sick. I just felt I almost had an allergic reaction to it. And I really stopped from that age onward. I just stopped watching altogether. But then it's gone through this renaissance, you know, and um, as many, many people have noted recently, in some ways, it's becoming the superior medium to movies. And that's because it's it's taken on much more interesting subject matter and treating it in a more sophisticated progressive experimental way and i think Hannibal is kind of the certainly on, as a network show is kind of the zenith of that kind of storytelling and um so yeah so for all of all of those reasons it was not only exciting for me to do it but it was kind of a a great revelation for me you know to see what can be done on tv yeah so that that's that's why i did it
0: that actually answers a couple of the other questions that I have prepared. Um, <laughs> Kate, did you want to ask anything in particular?
1: Well, sure. I'd love to get your perspective as uh, somewhat of a horror guy on horror television, <laughs> because that's one of the, you know, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about, about Hannibal and uh, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because I'm so not a horror person. Listeners to the televerse, which is, uh, Sean and I, my other podcast, will know that I am a notorious scaredy-cat, and I have to be forced to watch shows. Like, watching Salem's Lot for the te- televerse that traumatized me. Um, and, it's, and so this explosion of sort of horror television recently um, it has been something very, very new for me, and uh, also really for the genre of television. Horror has not had a particularly successful run over the years, as a, a television genre medium, a lot of the shows we think of as being earlier uh, horror kind of shows only last a couple seasons. And I'm curious uh, what your thoughts on that are comparing something like Hannibal's approach to horror. There were several horror touches I was seeing at least in your episodes, as well as other episodes of the season uh, and, and to something like, you know, American horror story or the walking dead, which take very different approaches to mm-hmm. the idea of horror.
2: Well, you know, I think, um, I just think it's, it's really too, in a, in a global sense, it's two things have happened. One, uh, television has grown up. In other words, really quality horror-type shows are being made for the first time. I mean, it's hard to really name a great horror TV show that preceded Phil Walking Dead or um, Hannibal or American Horror Story. I mean, I, I guess The Twilight Zone might fall in that category as something that was really great. But other than that, I guess people might mention Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but that doesn't really, that's to me, that's almost more action or comedy, or it's not really quite the same thing. Uh, so I th- i think it's something to do with how TV has opened up to allow itself to have um, shows like that on the air, whereas before there simply wasn't permitted. And then I think it's also um, that there's a new generation of people who, have a real love for that genre and um, they just didn't exist before. It's, it's a generational thing. It's probably a chicken and egg thing. I I don't know which came first, but, um, but I'm sure it's those two things uh, in collusion. And then, you know, with Hannibal specifically, I know it's the, of those three shows you mentioned, it's the one with the weakest ratings, but I would say, and this isn't to put down the other shows, but just for my own personal taste, it's the more interesting kind of horror because it's it's really going into uncomfortable places. I think horror as a genre is at its best when it uh, forces us to encounter something that is truly disturbing. And um, in fact, I think that's kind of the the reason we have horror. It's a cathartic um, way of, of facing things that are too horrible to face in real life. And so I think that's what Hannibal does. I think it really goes to some uncomfortable weird um interesting disturbing facets of what it is to be a human being and as opposed to the kind of horror where it's just you know like an amusement park ride which might be a little more not again not to in any way diminish those other shows but might be more the brand of horror that those other shows plays with so um so yeah as, as somebody who really loves horror specific kind specific kind of horror i I think Hannibal's very special that way and um I was so happy to see it got a third season. I didn't actually <laughs> I was I was pretty skeptical, but I thought it would maybe get a third season somewhere else. I didn't really think NBC would renew it, but um I'm I'm very glad they did. And uh but again, I think I, you know what what this is what we're seeing in the horror genre is symptomatic of a much much bigger sea change in the media landscape which is that movies and television have kind of reversed their roles. Um, I mean if you had <laughs> if someone had gone into a time machine and traveled back 10 15 years ago and said to me in the future Star Wars will be awful and Battlestar Galactica will be great, I would have <laughs> laughed at you. But that's sort of what happened and I think that says a lot about what's going on in in the movie world and the TV world and there's a very it's a complex formula, um, that has led us to this point. Um, there's a lot of economic factors related to the way movies are made now and sold now, and that requires that they be very safe and, um, reach the largest group of people possible and, and, um, and where decisions are made very much in a corporate kind of system. Whereas, television, it seems to be the opposite, at least in my very, very limited experience. I'm sure not all television is like that, but with Hannibal, Brian, it's, he makes all the choices. I mean, I, I, I know the network weighs in, and occasionally there's they butt heads, um, but I don't think it happens too much. I think the network kind of defers to Brian, and Gaumont, who produced the show, they defer to Brian, and that's that's basically... Um, what the French auteur theory proposed is that you know every movie has an author and generally speaking the, that author is the director in the case of TV it's the showrunner and great art comes from authors it doesn't come from committees so unfortunately what we're seeing in the film world is committee filmmaking and what you get is kind of bland and, and so it seems like TV is the place where people are making art who would have thought it's just so bizarre it's completely weird to me uh but uh you know so what great as long as it's being made somewhere
1: this is probably a foolish question but would you be interested in a project similar to this this year true detective I was on HBO and it had one writer and one director for all 10 episodes, which I believe is not the approach they're taking next year. I believe next season it's going to have several different directors. But would you be interested in a project like that? That is a, a shorter run TV show, but a weekly show, but all directed by yourself uh, or as a collaboration with just a handful of people?
2: Yeah, no, I think it's so beautiful. I love that. I mean, I, that's what I always thought TV should be it just, it just never was, you know, it was for the longest time, TV was procedural. And it was basically, you knew what you're going, it was like a Big Mac, you know, you knew what you're going to get every week, it was always the same thing. And it sort of repeated in variations over and over and over. Um, But I always thought, well, what TV should be is it should be like a novel, you know, because movies, you know, there's many, many cases of, of great novels, um, not translating well into movies. And often the reason for that is simply because movies can never really be more than three hours. I mean, that's the absolute limit. And usually, especially these days, it's, it's gotta be closer to two hours. So, so what ends up happening is, you know, a lot of the book gets thrown out or distorted in the process of trying to squeeze it into that timeframe. It always made sense to me that TV's TV series or miniseries should be like novels. They should have that uh, expansiveness And, uh, and so now that's happening. And it's really, I mean, it's so exciting. That is very exciting to me. I think the whole true detective thing is kind of a watershed moment, because um, I I love that form. I think that's a very, I think that's, you know, using TV the way it should be used, like doing, doing something that you can, you can't do in a movie. So it's, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I'd, I'd love to do something like that.
1: The last thing I do want to ask, though, is are there any, do you have any recommendations for us? Are there any shows that we should be watching or that our listeners should be watching? I'm sure you're very busy, probably don't have any, anywhere near as much time as we seem to have to watch TV. But is there anything you'd like to make a pitch for? Uh,
2: you know what? Well, I'm still, I kind of, having said all this, I live a little bit in a media blackout right now because I have a two-year-old son. <laughs> so I'm very, I am tell you, I'm really, really up to date on Curious George nice. and, uh, and Word Girl <laughs> and pretty much anything on PBS. Um, which are, you know, actually pretty good shows, but um probably not what your listeners are interested in. So, no, unfortunately, I can't. The only thing I could do is I could do a shameless self-plug for um a show that I've done that's very obscure, but you can see the first episode that I wrote and directed for free online called Darknet. And uh it's a it's something that I don't think we've seen in a long time, which is a horror anthology series. And uh I wrote and directed the first episode, the other Five episodes were written and directed by different directors and writers, and um, it's really fun and twisted. Uh, I like to think anyway, and it will be, right now you can see my episode online, you can if you're in Canada, and you mm-hmm. subscribe to the Cable Network um, Super Channel, you could watch it there, but I think in the relatively near future, it'll be available um, through a mainstream outlet in the States. So, so that's, I rarely do this, but that is a, a grotesque shameless piece of self self-promotion
1: <laughs> we love anthology series so that's well, definitely something that we'll have to look out for uh and now sean i'll stop talking <laughs> <I
0: apologize. laughs> that's all right and uh and i'll ask you in just a moment to do some more self-promotion but just really quickly if i can ask can we expect to see you for season three of hannibal have you expressed interest uh, to brian Fuller?
2: oh yeah yeah no i've killed to do it i th- I think that's gonna happen i'm pretty sure perfect
0: Nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. No, right. it's it, it's yeah I feel very, as I say, I feel extremely lucky to be a part of that.
0: So uh, this is usually the time where we ask our guests to kind of point our listeners in the right direction to their work online. But obviously, you do not do TV criticism. So um, if there are any uh, projects that you're working on that you want to plug or anything else um, that our listeners can get a hold of through the Internet, do uh, oh. want to mention any of that?
2: Well, you know, once again, Darknet. Uh, And if you want to watch Darknet, there's different ways of sort of uh, absorbing it. One is you could just YouTube it. But we also have the conceit of the show is that it's an anthology show, but um, within each half-hour episode, there are multiple stories. And the the sort of hub connective tissue for these stories is a website called Darknet. So if you log on to Darknet.com, excuse me, Darknetfiles.com, then you will see the same website that the characters in the show see and you can interact with that website in various ways it's pretty creepy um and then there's a link on that website for information on the series and as i said the first episode so that's probably the in terms of my online profile that's probably the best place to go well
0: thank you very much for that and for coming on once again um kate where can our listeners find you online
1: you can find me at the Televerse on Twitter and at Sound on Site and the AV Club where I'm writing all sorts of different reviews and uh, an articles. So check me out there. Drop me a line on Twitter or theteleverse at gmail.com if Twitter's not your thing.
0: And you can find some of my written reviews, including Hannibal, over at tvovermind.com. Otherwise, they will appear, uh, of course, at Sound on Site. Kate and I will be back next week to talk about the Season 2 finale, which we're very excited about, uh, Mizumono. Until then, thank you again, listeners, for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design. All right, we're back after not a very long pause at all. Uh, Vincenzo only had a certain amount of time in which he could talk with us, and we really appreciate that he made that time at all. Uh, but Kate and I are going to talk just a little bit more about the episode, Tome One, because we have a couple other things, or maybe more than a couple other things that we need to address, because there was a lot in this episode. Um, one thing that I wanted to point to was one of the notes that we end on, which is this comparison to uh, Achilles and Patroclus, and... Um, It's mentioned that hiding and revealing identity is a constant theme throughout the Greek epics. That's what Hannibal reminds Will. When I heard that, uh, I certainly thought about Will as an Odysseus figure, kind of lost at sea on a very long journey to reclaim his rightful place. Uh, And you could probably also think about Will not just as a fisherman using bait, but as someone constructing a a Trojan horse uh, of some sort to capture Hannibal. Do these... I guess lofty comparisons enhance your your Hannibal experience, Kate, or do they kind of sometimes come off as a little bit pretentious?
1: Oh, pretension just always enhances my experience uh, with these things because I, you know, because as I say on my Twitter – Uh, bio, I love overanalyzing things, and I'm a massive geek. So when you say it made you think of Odysseus, I think I'm a freaking idiot for not having made that clear connection, and uh, now I will go ponder it, and does that make Alana Penelope and, and, and. So uh, (laughs) no, I'm all for that. The whole episode revolved very much around this this whole chase thing and I could see how for some people maybe it would it was too on the nose I haven't seen that I haven't read other reviews yet I'm waiting until we finish recording to do that um but it was not uh, like we say some some things about Hannibal are incredibly subtle and some things are really not (laughs) and that element of this episode really was not but I I was fine with it. it to me it seems clear that uh Hannibal sees himself as Achilles
0: yeah, because he also points out that Patricles, uh was a character who had an uncanny uh, ability to empathize, and so that that's definitely the Will character. Yeah. Uh, the other interesting part there is how, I guess, uh, Achilles trains Patrocles under his wing to kind of become him. He mentions that he fought in his armor on the battlefield, and so I'm, I'm sure Hannibal... Wishes that he could do the same for Will, or maybe he even imagines that he's doing the same thing right now.
1: Well, and also with uh, that, that takes you to the-, the Trojan War, which also takes us to Odysseus, like you said. But if, if Will is an Odysseus figure, what what is his happy ending, reuniting with his Penelope? I mean, he doesn't have a Penelope. He doesn't. I- does is there a happy ending for Will?
0: I. I mean, if we are doing the comparison, then Alana would have to be the Penelope, but she doesn't exactly fit into that archetype in terms of, like, how that epic is structured and yeah. how that character is. So
1: I don't think it's a person. What Like, what could be... I, I, that's sort of like what we talked about last week. What possible happy ending is there for Will in this story?
0: Okay, this is going to sound utterly ridiculous and contrived, but I guess think about a journey as one that's entirely psychological and so like that series of events and those years and years away from home for Odysseus that is time that Will spends in insanity and I guess the happy ending is reaching some sort of semblance of sanity if he even can because obviously he's a different type of person than the average one at least according to some of the the traits that he has or the conditions that he has but that would be the closest thing that i could probably come up with
1: okay that makes sense yeah i think that i think that fits that fits nicely and um a series of trials especially because if you think of the various as opposed to the various um serial killers that that will has helped to capture as the 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 trials that he has to endure less of that and more as the progression of his relationship with Hannibal as the series of trials. I think it fits particularly well, but um, no, I think it's an interesting and a a well thought out comparison.
0: So uh, is, is Moss Mickelson or is Brad Pitt better as Achilles?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't actually see that one. Uh, So I, I, I know what I would instinctually say is the answer, but I don't want to, you know, give a review to something I haven't seen. So I will leave that's, it to our listeners.
0: <laughs> that's very democratic of you. Um, I, I actually like that film quite a bit for what it was. So I won't say anything too negative about it. Um, <laughs> did you want to go like a back and forth here? Cause I know you have several things in your notes that you wanted to address.
1: Oh yeah, sure. Well, I, I, I would love to spend a little bit of time uh, cause I, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I just loved jillian anderson in in this episode it was so wonderful to have her back it was such a surprise just not even narratively but just as tv aware people we know that she's really busy and apparently she had like a handful of hours she went on almost no sleep uh she found one day or like a, a handful of hours that she had between shooting crisis and the fall where she could come in to do those two scenes for this episode, Jillian Anderson, that is. And, I mean, that's dedication right there, uh, because I think she's still doing pretty good with her X-Files money. Um, But uh, I I thought just she added so much to this episode, particularly as somebody who watches very aware of the gender representations, because they can't really have Alana in the story in this episode because of what she knows. Um, Having instead bringing back Demore and getting that answer of what happened to her patient was really significant to me, especially because if I'm watching this from the perspective of the filmmakers and the writers involved, Brian Fuller and company, they didn't necessarily know they were getting a season three. So if there wasn't going to be a season three, I would have been extra happy to actually find out what happened. Were you surprised to to hear that apparently Hannibal didn't kill her patient? Uh, she did, and she cut off his tongue and stuck it down his throat or something.
0: <laughs> that that part is still a little bit murky, but I don't know if surprise would be the right word I would use to describe it, given all that we've seen in this series now, but I was at least very glad and satisfied that we got it. Until that point, I felt like, absolutely, give me Jillian Anderson in this role, on this series, every single episode, why not? But she hadn't necessarily provided any additional information um, about... the the Will-Hannibal relationship, but bringing that aspect in, I think, and just how perfect Gillian Anderson's performance was, where she kind of delivers that story, turns to the mirror, which Jack is behind, and just has this look in her eyes that kind of just explains it all, everything that she's feeling in that moment, which isn't just, like, shame or regret or guilt. It's something, like, way more affecting than that, I think, and I wouldn't even know how to describe it, but that was one of the more powerful scenes in that first half of the episode, which kind of had a bunch of those really good, quiet scenes. So uh, I was so happy that we got this, and especially like I mentioned earlier, that it was a surprise, because um, I know in a couple of podcasts ago, was it one or two, we mentioned that that she was brought up in the, the previously on segment, but she didn't appear in the episode, and that was mainly just to kind of remind us that she existed. And I wonder if that was kind of set up for this
1: I wouldn't be surprised knowing Brian Fuller. It's notable that she's, she's not in this previously on, right? No,
0: no, not at all.
1: So they make sure it's not, not tip their hands with that. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, if that was indeed the case. And the other thing that I do want to mention with Dr. DeMaurier is what, what bringing her back allows us aside from more. Jillian Anderson is awesome is an, a look into Hannibal's mind in a way that, I mean, yes, into Will's mind and into his experience, but, we have no real way to get into Hannibal's mind because even Will, we can't completely trust because we don't know how much Hannibal is trying to play him. Obviously Will has more insight into Hannibal than perhaps, or we're supposed to think that he does, than perhaps Hannibal necessarily is aware of, but we don't know. I go back to the episode last week directed by David Slade, where we saw those shots of, of Hannibal thinking and of Will thinking and, the shots of Hannibal thinking were inscrutable, at least to me. So even Will, we can't necessarily trust what he is seeing in Hannibal. And I think the closest we're going to be able to come to an honest read or an accurate read of Hannibal is Dr. du Maurier. And that's why I think you know having her come in and like and, and just sort of tell the audience, it, it felt like she could have just been talking directly to camera and saying, audience, Hannibal is more aware of what's going on than you think he is. And uh, this is not over.
0: That was a, a moment that my mom specifically mentioned to me. And, and I think this was her favorite episode overall. And she absolutely loved that. And Of course, she's a big X-Files fan. So that that colors her opinion a little bit. A lady but, of uh, taste
1: and culture, oh, yeah, clearly.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> uh, damn it. I said absolutely again.
1: I, I said interesting like five times. I'm sure our yeah. listeners are drunk by now. If you don't know oh, what well. we're talking about, there's a drinking game. Listen to The Last Televerse. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. The, the other thing that I was kind of speculated in my review for this episode was what is her place going forward? Cause it seemed like, okay. So Jack says that he's a good fisherman too and brings will to her. I, I wouldn't be surprised if she doesn't make it out of the season alive.
1: Well, are we going to see her again? I mean, I don't think we can see her again just as a, this isn't a, spoilers. This is just a, a, an assumption based on Jillian Anderson's shooting schedule. Um, but I would, you know, they 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 got these two scenes in the one day. I would be very surprised if they were able to shoot something else on top of this for to, to you know to come in the last episode of the season. Uh, I would be very surprised if we saw her next week. I would imagine next week is going to be very full of the fight scene that we already saw kick off the season and uh, you know everything that's going to come out of that. We've got. I'm sure we, we're going to see uh, Alana again. I wouldn't be surprised to see Freddie Lowndes again, um, but I would be very surprised if if there was room in what has to happen next week for uh, for, for DeMoria to make an appearance.
0: And that's why I really hate knowing some of the, the meta-televisual information that we get from knowing that, that she's on a couple other shows, so now just one because Crisis has been canceled, But and also having that walkthrough for us. like It would make sense to bring her back just because she- now she's been pulled into... I don't
1: think it does. I don't think it makes sense to bring her back because what else does she have to offer right now? I don't. Do you believe that DeMaurier would testify against Hannibal in open court? He would have to be there.
0: He would. Yeah, I guess it just seems like she was you being used specifically as bait and kind of is now in the wings like Freddie Lowndes. Um, But no, it could go either way. I, of course, I'm sure that we would want to see her, but you're right that I guess it might not make as much sense but uh, I, I guess I don't also don't really know how the show uses her from now on.
1: Yeah. Well, as, I think a lot it will come down to where Hannibal is at the end of this next episode. My, my guess is just that he will uh, escape and we'll have Hannibal on the run next season. That's sort of what I'm guessing. Cause I think it's the most interesting thing. Like, if you take Hannibal away from his awesome house with his nice food and his like three fireplaces, what does that look like? And, um, That's sort of what I'm anticipating. But uh, if that's the case, then I don't see a place for that character really on this, on the show other than getting killed. Um, This is a lot of assumptions on my part. Where do you think we're going to leave the season?
0: I don't know. Damn Hannibal and his three fireplaces though. That would be an interesting (laughs) interest. That would be a a really fun season if that were the case. And he was on the run, I I'm hesitant to to think that that will be the case though i there's got to be some way that fuller crafts this so that we get the fight and yet somehow hannibal is still not caught i don't know what that way is and i don't know if it has to do with like putting jack into like actual trouble with the law for his actions but uh, again i wish i didn't know that that red dragon is supposed to be the fourth season and not the third because then there's this big question mark and it's hard to kind of anticipate Fuller's moves at this point.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that's why, that's why we don't write it. Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a very good point. Um, I think I had one more big thing before uh, the the smaller details. Uh, This was an exchange of dialogue that happened murder or mercy. And Will says, there's no mercy. We make mercy, manufacture it in the parts that have overgrown our basic reptile brain. And then Hannibal makes the points. Then there is no murder. We make murder, too. It matters only to us. And I was thinking about this, and I, I try to look at Anibal from as many, the character, not the series, from as many different perspectives as possible. Um, I know this is somewhat of an odd question, but if you could think about not having the capacity to understand the concepts of murder and mercy, basically if you're in a state of innocence. Would you change? Would that change how you feel about Hannibal and his actions? Is, is awareness what makes him so terrifying? Hmm,
1: okay. Because
0: we've gotten like a lot of animal comparisons, right? And so those are entities that are devoid of, of that facility or faculty, and that has kind of affected certain colorings of Hannibal for me. But I don't know if like a child, for instance, would sense the evil that is his Hannibal Lecter.
1: There has been a lot of animal imagery in the series, and. With, in relation to Hannibal, very specifically, a lot of fish imagery. And we get a little bit of that this week. We got, we got more of it a few weeks back um, in actually one of Vincenzo Natale's episodes when, as uh, the, Hannibal prepared that trout. But there has been a lot, of, a lot of that imagery, and so I think it's a natural connection to make. And if, if you take away awareness, I would have to agree that Hannibal's crimes, his atrocities lose their significance because they lose their, their malice and they lose everything that frames them. And so they just become another thing that happens, but I don't think you can truly take awareness away. And so, uh, I guess that's where I would go with it. Yeah. I think it's an interesting idea, but I don't think it's something that we can really have a full understanding of. Necessarily, of course, this is off the top of my head because this is a lovely, complex, nuanced, brilliant question that I was completely unprepared for uh, because I apparently drank stupid juice this morning. Um, But yeah, I don't. I think it's a good, it's an interesting take on the character. If if Hannibal is not, he's not a person in the sense that we're used to, and so how does then how do the laws of society and humanity relate to someone? Or something that is outside of it.
0: I drink the stupid du- juice every day, so don't worry about that. I, I don't even know how I answer my own question in this case. I guess it's just another take on ignorance is bliss to some extent, but I find that idea slightly disturbing. That there is a a frame through which the dog barks really loudly. There is a frame through which Hannibal is not what we think he is in terms of being. This, demonic villain of sorts i guess and and you have to view it through that animalistic animalistic objective perspective Uh, but you're right it's not necessarily one that we can relate to or empathize with or that might even not be useful in in this circumstance but it's something that i thought the episode brought up which was interesting Uh, another thing the episode brings up as it does in every episode lots of stuff having to do with music that I know nothing about. So that'll take us to this installment of Kate's Classical Corner. What can you tell us about the scoring in One?
1: Well, there are three classical pieces that are used, uh, featured prominently, one right after the other. So first we have Mozart's Concerto for Violin Number no. 5, which is a piece of standard repertoire for violinists. It's one of the pieces that every violinist learns. So it's a very familiar piece to me. This was the second movement. And interestingly enough, this this was used in the scene of Hannibal preparing the meal that he has with, uh, with Jack. And interestingly enough, this is the Turkish uh, concerto. And of course, Turkey is across the Black Sea from the Ukraine. It was a Ukrainian dish featuring fish that would go in water. I thought that was a fun little completely, I'm sure, random element to, to that song. But that was a a selection from the adagio, which is the, the second movement or the slow movement of that concerto. They use the portion of the piece leading right up to the cadenza. A cadenza is a, a soloistic um, showpiece area or portion of a piece uh, of a concerto or a larger work that is just the soloist by themselves without any accompaniment so the orchestra drops out the piano drops out whatever it is and it's just the the soloist so as as Hannibal is preparing the the meal we have some solo stuff but we also have the orchestral accompaniment featured prominently. And then as he goes to present the dish at the table, the cadenza comes in. I was a little bummed that it got so soft because of the dialogue. You have to have dialogue. Um, and so we couldn't actually hear much, much of the cadenza, but that, that is one of the, that, that's the first piece featured. It's a, a lovely version of that piece. And then that leads directly into the Chopin Prelude, uh, Opus 28, number two, which was the song that was used as they transitioned from that meal to Uh, to Will preparing food for his dogs and it was uh, transitioned very specifically Hannibal says uh, whoever is chasing whom I'm going to eat them and there's sort of a chuckle and then it cuts to the and that's when the the Chopin comes in the Chopin of course is much more dissonant it's it's much more challenging than the Mozart is it's a, a very short piece very simple piece a deceptively simple piece it's very challenging to play at the highest levels because it is so simple but it has this very uh almost plain melody in in the the right hand of the piano gorgeous very tonal very um very pleasing to the ear and underneath it you have these eighth notes these again very patient and relentless eighth notes that transit go back and forth between being very tonic or uh, very uh tonal to being very dissonant. We have tritones in there, a bunch of tritones. Tritones are uh, the interval between a perfect fourth and a perfect fifth, which is, uh, was known for quite a while as the devil's interval. It's very dissonant um, and striking. There are some minor sevenths and other very dissonant intervals in there as well. So while you have this very lovely melody in the piano, in the right hand of the piano, in the left hand you have sort of underneath that uh, that goodness, underneath that simple beauty, uh, a lot of nuance and murkiness. And at the same time, we're seeing this meat. We don't necessarily know what it is. And we realize later that it is dog food and not people, like we might initially expect with this show. Um, and so, so I thought that was a, a really fun contrast between how Hannibal sees himself presenting this this piece, present, you know this soloistic cadenza of, of his uh, creation to Jack, and how, how Will sees himself. As this far more complex and challenging uh piece. And then that directly leads to the foray requiem again, the PAYEZU in this in this case. Uh, p- listeners to This Is Our Design will remember that first we had the In Paradisum featured in episode eight, and then the next episode we had the Kyrie featured. And I'll get back to how those were used. But here we have the Requiem come in uh and we have it come in right as uh, Mason starts talking with Will. We transition from the Chopin before the left-hand relentless sort of figure drops out, by the way, which is interesting for those who know the Chopin. Um, but we have the the Requiem come in, and it's boy soprano, not a, at least I think it's a boy soprano, not a, a woman singing the, the soprano line. And, and that boy soprano comes in right when Mason starts talking. We see his mouth start moving and talking to Will, so I thought that was... A, a very nice little touch there. The the Fuere Requiem, the In Paradisum was used as Will and Hannibal went to go get Peter from the barn in episode 8. And again, the the lyrics there, may angels lead you to paradise. And then the next episode, uh Will presents the body of Randall to the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And this week we have the Piazzou as Mason takes uh, Will off, but then more specifically as Hannibal is drawing Achilles and Petrocles. And uh, the lyrics there, um, Pia Jesu Domine, Dona es Requiem, Pia Jesu Domine, Dona es Requiem, uh, Sempaternum. So, Pious Lord Jesus, give them rest, give them rest. Pious Lord Jesus, give them everlasting rest. And so to go from, you know, to tie these three scenes together as sort of the progression of, uh, of where Will and Hannibal's relationship started to build in that you know very significant scene in the barn, to to the presentation of Randall, to now where it transitions to Hannibal up being offered to Will, you know I, I really love the the consistency there of the use of the foray for each of those. The the touch of the boy soprano is is nice as well, and just um just just this notion of you know, who is the angel, who is leading whom, who is, you know, may they have rest, may they have eternal rest, you know, is this a good thing, is this a bad thing, you know, do we want Will to be at peace, Hannibal to be at peace, do we just want them dead, how how are those things different? There's a lot to unpack here, just from the classical music, and then there's the scoring. Sh- shall I stop, Sean, because I've been going for a while here. No,
0: I want to know everything about the scoring. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, I'll just say a, a few things about the scoring. When we had the fantasy sequence with Will uh, killing Hannibal earlier, you, you, it's again. The, I don't. Did you Did you pick up on the instrumentation? No, I didn't. It's cello and percussion once again. So, so again, when when Hannibal is. Uh, Transitioning into that, and then as Hannibal is hanging there, as Will cuts him, it's it's cello, which then and then the cello sort of fades down as the percussion comes up. So that's a fun little bit there. Uh, we with. The both um, Mason and Margot, we get more of an Eastern inflection to the music, very specifically with Mason when he's tripping, uh, with or when he's you know been you know forced these hallucinogens into a system. And then over the credits, I think it's the same piece, I don't know what the name of that piece is, I wish I did. If you know, please let me know at the Televerse on Twitter. Um, but even earlier, when, when Margot is uh, look, look, examining her scars, there's uh, more of an Eastern sound to the pizzicato and the string used there. And then the, the final Will and Hannibal scene at the end of the episode features a nice uh, bit of sort of chimes to, to, underneath it that feel very much like a sort of a grandfather clock kind of a sound of a muted more distant but that that sort of sound to it which i thought was a nice contrast to of course their first scene together in in therapy this uh, this season after will got out there was this sort of rat-a-tat back and forth a strong percussive hits between their dialogue here we get that as well but it's these gentle chimes a reminder that time is 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 coming down they're running out of time and it you know there's there's only so much they can put off the inevitable and which of course, we also know to be inevitable because the season opened with it, and that's that fight scene that the confrontation with Jack we know that has to come, and the scoring is telling us that as well and I did remember the, the this I promise this is the last thing for Kate's classical corner this week when we come out of the the fantasy for will and and Hannibal says, uh, what did you see, or something like that. The scoring for Will is this very simple piano line, and I swear it's been used on the show before. I couldn't figure out where. I thought it was when Will first went home after the asylum, but it's it's not. That's different scoring. But it's this really peaceful and uh, very lovely and tonal uh, line. There's, you know, only a few notes. And Contrasting that with the Chopin we get later for Will, which is also solo piano, is, is really distinct. So it's the fantasy and his holding on to that notion versus the reality that we get later in the episode. The rea- reality is far more complex and far more challenging. And that's where I will leave it this week for Kate's Classical
0: Corner. Ditto. I agree with everything you just said. And those were my thoughts as well. <laughs> The, the piano line that you just mentioned, actually, that, that really stuck out to me. I've been reading a bunch of student essays on the Shawshank Redemption, the film. And just because I had that soundtrack in my head, I was like, there must be some similarities there. Because that immediately brought that to mind, even though it was already fresh. So um, that was rather beautiful. Uh, but we'll move on to the devil in the details. And I have, I think five or six of these uh, I'll begin by playing out something in the script so I come from a, a writing background and I most of the, the details that I key in are usually like syntax or word choice and um, Jack says don't let empathy confuse what you want with what Lector wants and specifically using Hannibal's last name here where we almost always have heard Jack call Hannibal Hannibal or use the term doctor um, there's this There's definitely uh, an obvious defamiliarization going on now that he knows who Hannibal really is. So I thought that that was a really um, effective note.
1: Nice. Um, I'll say Gillian Anderson's hair and her blouse, her red blouse. What is it with Hannibal and uh, women in red? There's a lot of women in red in this show, particularly uh, red blouses but uh what Jillian Anderson or I should say what Dr. DeMoyer is wearing is that's straight out of film noir all she needs is uh Freddie's hat to complete kind of that look and a little bit of uh like a circular fan you know overhead a little bit of uh, uh Dutch angles uh in our camera work and that's she's a you know femme fatale straight out of a film noir so I thought that was a really nice nice touch as well especially until we you know before we have revealed that she is the one who killed. Uh, uh, her patient that there is a little bit of deception going on there as well. So that was one of the things I noticed.
0: Uh, another script thing. Uh, Mason says no fat on you take more than a flesh wound to make you squeal as opposed to there is no fat on you. And it would take more than a flesh wound to make you squeal. So I guess truncating his dialogue, I'm not sure what that says about his character, but that's definitely, um, Separates him from somebody like Hannibal, who's very deliberate and thorough in his speech.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, the the other one that I'll mention uh, here is the um, when when Hannibal is wiping his hand after having gotten it bloody on on Mason. It's, uh, he, he, he breaks the neck, the the music, by the way, there, there's a, a high tone that kind of comes in and fills the role of like a hospital, like monitor when the line, you know, when the beep, beep, beep. So I thought that was a nice little, uh, audio, audio trickery there to make us think that Mason's dead. But, uh, but after he breaks Mason's neck, he, then he like wipes his hand on his sleeve because he's like, oh, get this, get this gross guy off of me. So I thought that was a, a fun little, little touch.
0: Uh, I guess something slightly related to that was when Hannibal's pouring the wine, I noticed that a little bit came down the side of that decanter, and I'm wondering if he did not notice it, because it seems like Hannibal is the kind of person who would not want anything to spill at all. So that was a very, very small moment of imperfection on his part.
1: The uh, the Margot, Will, and Hannibal scene was really well lit. In, in an episode that a lot of our scenes especially the scenes with Hannibal, were very dark. It, even just the, uh, the, the Mason and Hannibal therapy scene is very dark, the first one. Um, we later do get that lovely bit of uh, flickering flame behind Hannibal as he's talking with Will, who's going back and forth between those uh, profile one-shots. Um, but, but the scene with, with Margot is notably much brighter. Of course, they're in a different setting, so that helps. Um, but I was noticing that lighting as well.
0: Uh, early in the episode when Hannibal is asking Will to to think about what it would be like or or what he wants to do and and we see him kill uh, Hannibal in that sequence before he he goes into that uh, vision I just really appreciate the time that Hugh Dancy takes before closing his eyes so he's sitting there his eyes are open he's deliberately constructing what he wants to see as soon as he closes his eyes and it takes a few seconds to get there so I thought that that was a great touch
1: and I will use, I guess, my last devil in the detail to say the thing that I forgot to say about Piesu and Chopin, which is the the left hand of the Chopin, if you take out the bottom note of the first of each eighth note set and the top note of the second, the, the internal line, the interior line of the uh, Chopin left hand is very similar to the Dies Irae. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It does da-da-da-da over and over again within the... the the left hand of the Chopin, and of course the Dies Ire, the last motet of that, is the Piazzu, is where that those words come from. So there's an extra little tie between Chopin and Foray, And I will leave it there. I have no more details. Everybody looked gorgeous. Lots of ties, Hannibal's, <laughs> e- e- even the straight jacket matches Hannibal's pants. Everybody looks wonderful this week.
0: <laughs> yeah, no kidding, and it's, it's just a very superficial thing to say, but man. Catherine Isabel is smoking hot in this episode, so...
1: Everybody on this show is way too pretty.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the devil in the details goes by so quickly when we do that firing back and forth. That, that's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, good times.
0: <laughs> we're we're going to cut out all future guests from that segment. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding, future guests. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to mention about Tommy Wan before we wrap up?
1: There's there's so much for next week. I'm looking forward to, to what next week will bring. It... I guess the 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 where I'll leave it with you, and I'll pose a question to you as my, as my last thought on the episode. does the show need to keep getting more disturbing i'm I'm sort of at my level and i'm I'm as much as I love having this show, and I will miss it when it's gone. I think it's probably good for my stomach that there's only one episode left because it feels like each episode you know they've had they've Try to one-up themselves so what's the most gruesome thing we can do remember the start of the season when the guy being stitched into the eye was like the grossest thing ever how cute is that now
0: <laughs> cute yeah i would say that definitely
1: <laughs> but you know, there's this notion of of one u- one upping itself on on what it can get away with and how disturbing an image can be is that uh, something that you th- you feel is important for the show or is that something that you wouldn't mind them getting away from
0: I guess all I want is for Brian Fuller to not feel like he needs to one up. I'm not so bothered by the fact that there are plenty of gruesome images. I mean, that's, that's just part of the Hannibal thing. Um, But specifically, I don't want to get a sense that they need to outdo themselves every time. Like this Mason scene, even though it was shot very much in the dark, really should be the pinnacle of that for quite some time because Good Lord, that that should give some people nightmares. I would hate to be a kid, kind of tuning into NBC at 10 o'clock on a Friday night and seeing after Grimm. America. Yeah, right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think the X Files was the closest comparison show for me when I first started watching the first season of Hannibal, and that was a series that I think struck a good balance. It wasn't nearly as kind of psychologically disturbing because of its gruesomeness as Hannibal has been Um, but it's had the sense to kind of reel in some of its audaciousness and and I think that Hannibal and Brian Fuller should be able to take a cue from that and not overdo it but then again I don't necessarily know if anything has been overdone for me at this point. Some of the, the tableau have been very heightened but again that's kind of cannibals go to so th- that's where i would i would leave it again not to, not to feel like that's a necessity
1: yeah that, that makes sense to me
0: all right well we'll be back next week once again to talk about the finale one thing i, I did want to add was that if listeners have any questions that they'd like to pose uh next week again will be a bit of a beefed up episode because not only will we be doing the the normal analysis but this will be the season finale so there will be plenty of kind of general uh, questions to ask, such as, you know, what was the, the best murder tableau, for instance. Um, so if there's anything in particular that, that listeners want us to weigh in on, including whoever else is on the podcast, and uh, listeners can look forward to that as well.
1: Yeah, we're going to have, it's we're going to do something very new for us. We're going to have two guests. We'll see. It's too, it's crazy. We're, going, we're thinking outside the box here, Sean.
0: <laughs> These last two episodes, man, it's... <laughs> Pretty soon it's just going to be uh, alive. Mayhem. It'll be he, yeah, Yeah.
1: <laughs> Dogs and cats <laughs> living together. Mass hysteria.
0: We'll actually be in an episode of Hannibal pretty soon.
1: Oh, God. <laughs> that would be terrifying. <laughs>
0: uh, but that's it for this week. Once again, thank you to Vincenzo and Natalie, And we've already given our information about where you can find us. So this has been a enhanced and enlarged episode of This Is Our Design.
2: Time
1: ever I saw your
2: face, I thought.